Hello and welcome to the Dunboyne College podcast. In recognition of International Women's Day on March 8th, Dunboyne College is hosting a series of special events to promote awareness and raise funds for charity. In this special episode of the podcast, Joanna is joined by DCFE psychology teacher Patrice Byrne, Dr. Anita Byrne of Dundalk Institute of Technology, and Teresa Woods from the Drogheda Women's Refuge to discuss the topic of domestic abuse and intimate partner abuse. As a lot of us are aware, the 8th of March is a celebration of International Women's Day. And on this very important day, Dunboyne College is calling to attention the fact that one in five women in Ireland will experience violence in their lifetime. So in considering this occasion, we would like to extend a very warm welcome to Dr. Anita Byrne from DKIT in Dundalk and Teresa Woods from Drogheda Women's Refuge. Both Anita and Teresa have extensive experience of working in the area of domestic abuse and intimate partner abuse and will speak about the warning signs of coercive control and intimate partner abuse. They will also speak about the support services available for people who feel they may be exposed to domestic abuse and intimate partner abuse. So you're all very welcome today and I thank you so much for your time, for your expertise in discussing these very important issues. So Patrice, I'll hand over to you now and let you proceed with questions for our two guests, one of which you know extremely well, because she's your twin sister. Thanks very much, Patrice. Thanks so much, Joanna. And thanks, Anita and Teresa, for joining us this morning. Teresa, can you tell me who can experience domestic abuse and intimate partner abuse? Anybody can literally experience domestic abuse. Usually we start to notice it from teenage relationships upwards and we don't get any training for that, for how to be in a relationship, even though we get training for practically everything else, like driving. So it can be noticeable from teenage relationships upwards, obviously adult intimate relationships, both same-sex relationships and um, LGBTQ relationships. What sometimes people find quite surprising is how common it is in elder abuse, where elderly partners or married people can be abusive to each other, or their adult children can be very abusive to them as well. There is nobody that is safe because it has nothing to do with the victim or survivor. It literally has to do with who you happen to end up with in an abusive relationship. In the refuge in Drada, we would have six houses at the back of the refuge with families in them. At any one time, there's usually three to four families where the woman in the family is pregnant or she has recently given birth. And I think Anita could probably tell you a little bit more about that. Yeah, the whole area of domestic abuse and pregnancy is particularly disturbing. It's a time, if you think about it, that should be cherished and nurtured, where women should feel safe, where the pregnancy should progress uh, without fear, uh, without threats. However, we do know that uh, about a third of women who are abused, the abuse will commence for the first time during pregnancy. And we think that's related to control as everything around domestic abuse is. If a woman becomes pregnant, it's likely that it may be the first time that she's going to engage with health services, with maternity services. 
it's also a very intimate process that's happening. So the women will have to expose parts of their body that they mightn't have done so in the past. And they're engaging frequently with midwives and obstetricians and GPs. So there's an element of, of loss of control uh, on the part of the perpetrator uh, in that their partners um, are going to be engaging with people outside of the close-knit uh, power dynamic that, that it was in existence. So that can trigger the commencement of abuse for about a third of women. Um, and it can also exacerbate or change the features of pre-existing domestic abuse. So pregnancy is not a protective factor uh, in exposure to domestic abuse. In fact, it may be a trigger for many women. Can you tell me how common domestic abuse and intimate partner abuse is? And Teresa, could you answer that one first? Thank you. Throughout Ireland, there are 39 services full-time, most of them 24 hours a day, dealing purely with domestic abuse. So it might give you some idea of the scale of the problem. And those are only the services that are dealing with people who have recognised it and have actually come forward for help. A lot of people don't realise it's a leading cause of death in women. I think something that puts it into context sometimes is that most people in the country, if you ask them about, you know, the Hutch, Kinahan gang warfare, most people have actually heard of that. But more women have died as a result of domestic violence in the same period than Hutch and the Kinahan gangs put together. In 2016, when the Hutch and Kinahan gang were at the height, 16 women died as a result of domestic abuse that year, higher than any any death toll from the gang warfare and yet every single day it was flashing on the news, flashing on the newspapers about the feud between the two families. So I think that kind of puts it into perspective. When we look at the pregnancy picture, there is a report that's published annually between the UK and Ireland that look at why women die during pregnancy, not just um, as a result of domestic abuse, but there's a chapter every year that looks at homicide during pregnancy or in the perinatal period. And in the last report, 14 women died during pregnancy or or up to six weeks after they'd given birth. Um, And this is a joint report by UK and Ireland, so it's not just Irish women. But there were key features in in that report uh, in relation to how the women were murdered, why they were murdered, who who actually murdered them. And the vast majority of women, 90% of the women, were killed by either their partner or a family member. Following on from that, can you identify the danger signs and red flags of domestic abuse and intimate partner abuse? And are there particular times when domestic abuse and intimate partner abuse occur? I would say that the danger signs, though they're often difficult to spot, are literally from the first moment that you meet somebody who's going to be abusive in a relationship. And just to keep that in mind, that they are going to be abusive in their relationship even if you were born in America, they would be here having an abusive relationship with somebody else. That's who they're always going to be. At the very beginning, especially when you think about, you know, young people meeting, from the very moment that you meet, there is a dynamic has been established that sets up the relationship. And how you can see that dynamic developing is from the cut in the comment. That's what what I, I phrase it as. The cut in the comment being that, From the very beginning, there will always be a little put down, a little criticism, always veiled over with 
it's only a joke, you know, they're only slagging or whatever, but it's always there. And that is not there with, if you like, an ordinary person that isn't going to be abusive in their relationships. It's one of the most noticeable early warning signs at the very beginning. The thing then that people usually miss that, but what they, they start to notice, and often friends would notice it quicker than the actual victim, would be where the person is very full on. Most abusive relationships start very quickly and move very fast. So you go from, you know, you didn't know this person to all of a sudden they want to spend 24 hours a day with you. They're constantly texting you, ringing you. They want to know where you are. They want to um, you to share your location with them. When you first meet somebody and they're absolutely gorgeous and you're mad about them, it sounds lovely and it feels lovely because they're, they're mad about you. They can't get enough of you. And that's a lovely feeling for anybody. But young people especially have to ask themselves the question, what were they doing last week? What were they doing the week before they met me? Where was their life? You know, where were their interests, their friends, their sports, whatever they were into, music? What were they doing the week before me that all of a sudden they can literally spend 24 hours a day with me? So that to me would be the the, the early warning signs that people look out for. And if perpetrators had a handbook, I always say on page one, it would say isolate your victim. Spend as much time with your victim that they're isolated from their friends, from their family, you know, from um, just other social aspects. That they, And that starts off not as a bad thing, but as a good thing because they want to spend all the time with you. But then it begins that, you know, you're, you're losing contact with your friends and people. And it's very hard in, in the end of it. But it what starts out looking like a good thing ends up looking like isolation. And I suppose coming from that framework of isolation and power and control, looking at it in the, the context of sexuality, uh, sexual coercion, reproductive coercion, we know that pregnancy can be used as a way to control people, either controlling them to become pregnant, to stay pregnant or to not stay pregnant. The, the perpetrator has complete control over the reproductive choices of the survivor of their partner. They can sabotage contraception to make the woman become pregnant without her knowledge or without her choice. They can force their partners to have terminations when the partners really w wish to keep the pregnancy uh, ongoing. This brings us into the whole area of um, sexual coercion um, and the issue of stealthing, which seems to be on the rise. So stealthing is the removal of a condom during sexual intercourse when the original plan was to use condom throughout the uh, throughout the sexual act as such. So it's removal of condom without the knowledge of the other person. Stealthing can happen in homosexual relationships where men have sex with men, but mostly would feature uh, in, in heterosexual relationships where men are having sex with women and they remove the condom during the um, during the sexual act without the consent or sometimes the knowledge of uh, their partner. It's a difficult feature to legislate for and to prosecute. It is considered rape adjacent in the US, but we have very unclear or less clear um, prosecution avenues uh, within Ireland and the UK. Anecdotally, the incidence does appear to be on the rise um, amongst younger people. 
it's also used as a way to as a, as a feature of reproductive coercion where maybe the woman may not want to become pregnant but her partner is using pregnancy as a form of control and may remove a condom during the sexual act in order to have a pregnancy happen it is something that we need to be very mindful of and is particularly pertinent and particularly appropriate i suppose to the the, the people who are potentially listening to us today Anita, did COVID and lockdown impact on domestic abuse and intimate partner abuse? It didn't necessarily trigger an increase in it. What it did was it triggered an increase in reporting. So the numbers of women who are experiencing, a number of men who are experiencing domestic abuse is still extremely high. The number of people reporting it does seem to have increased during COVID for numerous reasons. The fact that we were in lockdown and that people didn't really have an escape, either the, the survivor or the perpetrator were, were within a very close environment. So they didn't really have a means of separating their, their daily activities. So initially when COVID happened, there were reports of an increase in, in domestic abuse reporting of about 30 to 40%. More recent formal evidence would suggest that probably 20% uh, increase across the board seems to be the feature. Uh, like I said, there are numerous reasons why why this might happen. In recognition of that increased reporting incidence of domestic abuse, again, highlighting the fact that domestic abuse is happening, whether it's reported or not, it's the reporting of it that increased. We're still not seeing the full picture of the number of women and men who are experiencing domestic abuse. The Gardaí introduced Operation Fuisiv in April 2020 as a direct result in the increased reporting of domestic abuse. And Operation Fuisiv was a way of allowing women and men who are experiencing domestic abuse get the help that they need from uh, from the Gardaí. It's still in operation. It's not like COVID has gone away and therefore Operation Fuisiv has stopped. It's actually still in operation. So I suppose to answer that question, Patrice, the reporting of, of incidents has increased, but the incidence is always going to be there. And we're not seeing the true level of women and men experiencing domestic abuse because it's just the, the reporting of the incidents that's increasing. And Teresa, have you seen an impact of COVID on reports of domestic abuse and intimate partner abuse? Yes, I think that lockdown has actually made for very interesting observations really about domestic abuse that sometimes people mightn't be aware of. I'm a therapist, so I see clients all the time in relation to domestic abuse. And during COVID, I was still on the phones speaking to people. And I found something that really surprised me at the time was that for some people who already knew that they were in an abusive relationship with a very controlling person, they actually reported to me that things got better, which I think nobody was kind of, um, that wasn't being sort of reported, that things got better from the point of view that when they had an extremely controlling partner, that when the partner after a, probably about a month of lockdown realised that the victim, for want of a better word, was not going anywhere, not seeing anybody else, not doing anything else outside of the home. It actually helped the perpetrator to relax, if, if, if that's the right word, but to relax their own anxiety around their control issues. And the victims were reporting to me that for, in some of those circumstances, things had actually improved because, um, and these were people who already knew that they were in an abusive relationship, that things had actually improved 
and they'd actually been getting on a lot better than they had for maybe a few years. Whereas I think for some people where Anita was speaking there quite correctly about the you know reporting of incidents, I think for some people, lockdown helped them to realise I am in an abusive relationship. They actually even had time themselves. They weren't rushing out the door to jobs and rushing kids here and there and everywhere. And they actually had time to, to actually reflect and look at the relationship and realise this this is abuse, you know. So I think it there was good things came out of it in a very unusual way, but it also helped victims who even knew that they were in an abusive relationship, even though they realised things had improved. It also gave them a glimpse of what life could be like. And they didn't want to, after lockdown, they didn't want to go back to the controlling ways, feeding the anxiety of the perpetrator. Anita, if I can go back to you, please. Um, Can you tell me what the causes of domestic abuse and intimate partner abuse are? There's so many theories um, around this. And if we knew what the cause was, we could probably find a resolution to it. It's very, very hard to have an exact answer to that. There's lots of theories around societal issues like are we living in a patriarchal society where it's naturally the situation where men have power over women? That's certainly one issue that can be explored. There's a whole biological issue around testosterone and potentially is that some of the features of domestic abuse where men uh, are abusing women. Is it to do with the psychology of the individual, their own life background, their own role models that they were exposed to growing up, their own innate personality traits and and needs and desires? Or is it all of those features? And, And it's possibly all of those features. What we do know is that domestic abuse is characterised by control. It's the perpetrator wanting to have and maintain control over the, the person that they want to control, whether that's their wife, their child, their mother, their father, their sibling. It's about control and it's about having complete control over that person. And and as Teresa had mentioned earlier on, isolating them in order to optimise that level of control. And where any feature of life will can impact or in, interject into that ability to control the person, that's when we see the anxiety of the perpetrator and the possible exacerbation of domestic abuse towards the, the woman or, or the, the, the partner. And domestic abuse is not just physical, it's psychological, it's technological, it's economic, it's it's coercive behaviour, it's threats, elder abuse, sibling abuse, It's not just the physical uh, violence. In terms of why do people become violent towards their their partners, towards their mothers, their fathers, their siblings, it's a question that no one has a clear answer to, but we have a lot of theories around it. Teresa, would you like to come in on that? Yes, I agree completely with what Anitra said. It's very varied. What I would say from working on the perpetrator programme with the men who have obviously committed these offences and working with them for a number of years, I have noticed that there is the control element. What they're trying to control is their own lack of self-worth and self-esteem. They believe themselves that they're absolutely worthless and they always feel that when they've got a partner that they fooled them into it, if, if you know what I mean, that they They grabbed them and now they have to maintain that and they feel that 
when the partner actually starts to see them, that they will naturally see their low self-esteem and their all of their inadequacies and leave them. So what they try to do is they try to, again, for page number one, isolate the victim and have as much control over them as possible to keep them in the relationship. And it's it's terrible because it usually works out then that the person wants to leave the relationship because of the abuse. You know, it's not. It, it, they actually work against themselves. So on the perpetrator program, what we try and do is we try and literally strip them back to infants and then rebuild them again and rebuild their self-esteem and understanding and confidence. And it has such a good um, result that it obviously is something that, that resonates with them. So, Teresa, can perpetrators of domestic abuse and intimate partner abuse change? Perpetrators can change instantly if they want to. They physically can stop immediately. And at the beginning of the perpetrator programme, they're asked to sign a document to say that for the duration of the programme, they won't be violent to the partner. And what always shocks the partner is that he can sign this consent to, to agree to this and then he's no longer violent. And the perpetrator, because they've always known that they have planned it and executed it, and it's not actually real, they're not really having an explosion or losing their temper, they've planned the violence and the, the manipulation. It always shocks the victim when they see him sign a piece of paper, then all of a sudden, now he's not violent. But what that's the, one of the benefits of the programme, that by the end of the programme, the victim is never willing to go back to the way it used to be, because she can see by signing his name, he actually could control it. Can they change? Absolutely. The programme can help them cope with that change. And the biggest change on the programme is how they treat their children. That's the best thing that happens from that programme, that they actually start to see things from somebody else's point of view. And teaching empathy isn't the easiest thing but when you do it from their point of view, it actually does work. The only time that I've seen on the programme that it hasn't worked so well is when you get a, a, a man who comes onto the programme, his ex is no, no longer has any contact with his ex or his children, and he doesn't have a current partner. And it's a crude way of putting it, but it's like he doesn't have somebody to practice on as he's learning his new skills. And I've found then that when they finish the programme and then they do go into another relationship, quite often that can become abusive again. But it's literally, it's one of the guys who tried to explain to me, it said, it's like learning to drive from a book. You know, you need the driving lesson to practice the things that you've learned. So I understand that. So that's the only time that I've seen that there's not as great an outcome. Anita, could you explain the effects of domestic abuse and intimate partner abuse on survivors? So I think it's it's important that we look at this, um, as Teresa said, on the impact on, on others of what the perpetrator is doing and what that means for other people. And coming from a, a maternity midwifery background, I think it's important to have a look at what happens to the baby in utero, the baby who's not born yet, and the impact of domestic abuse starting at that point in life. So a woman who is pregnant, who's exposed to domestic abuse, is going to be in a stressful situation throughout her pregnancy. 
that transient stress that we all feel at times in our lives, maybe coming up to exams where we're a little bit agitated, that's good stress because it motivates us to work well and it motivates us to, to put in our best efforts. But if we are exposed to that level of stress over a prolonged period of time, it alters the way we function. And if we're pregnant and carrying a baby at the same time, it also alters the way the baby is developing and the baby is functioning. A woman who's experiencing stress during pregnancy, consistent stress during pregnancy, is actually going to trigger an alteration in the brain architecture of her baby that's growing inside her. And these babies come out with very, very high cortisol levels and they're, they're startled by the world. They're startled before they're born and they're startled when they enter the world. That's difficult, I suppose, to address in that if we're still, if the baby's still going to be exposed to that level of abuse and stress within the home life, either as an infant or as a toddler or as a young child, that will continuously put a high stressed hormones circulating in the children and that will alter the way that they're developing, it will alter their behaviour, it will alter their ability to engage with school um, and potentially have massive impacts um, on the rest of their life. So the perpetrators may not be aware that what they're doing has this massive impact even before their children are born and will continue to perpetrate massive impact on their children and on their partners throughout the lifetime that they're exposed to this level of abuse. I would totally agree with what Anita's saying. And when I was doing my own master's, my thesis was on from conception to therapy, because I believed, as as Anita's just explained, that literally the status of the parental relationship at the time that the child was conceived can literally forecast what might happen to that woman and child going forward. Um, and eventually, obviously, hopefully into therapy, because they are literally, as, as Anita said, they're born scared. And we see that in the refuge from the dead faces of three and four month old babies who literally have no expression, no eye contact. The mothers, when the babies may have been conceived in difficult circumstances, perhaps through rape, they don't make eye contact with the babies. They turn the babies away from them when they're feeding them. They turn the baby chairs away from them so they're not actually looking at the babies. They lay them down in the cot facing the wall. There's all of these things that you can notice that don't usually happen when a lady has had a baby. And I think it goes right the way through and it really explains the emotional abuse and the impact on women and children because if somebody physically attacks you, which would be terrible, but they go away and you never see them again, providing that they haven't killed you, hopefully you'll get over your injuries. It'll be traumatic. It'll be the instant and you will move on from it. With emotional abuse, what happens is if the person disappears, unless you get a lot of really good experience therapy, you will go on abusing yourself for years in your head, you will hear all the criticisms. Everything will trigger you that triggered you an attack before. It's literally like post-traumatic stress disorder for the rest of your life. If you don't actually get in away from the person, it's not the answer. Getting therapy is the answer to actually help you deal with what's happened to you. 
And Anita, can you tell me what does the law say about domestic abuse and intimate partner abuse? So we're quite lucky, I suppose, in some respects in Ireland in that we have a relatively new Domestic Violence Act that was uh, 2018. Prior to that act, we had a 1996 act that was a little bit limited in its scope for prosecution of perpetrators. The Domestic Violence Act in 2018 introduced a, a whole new area of abuse recognition, and that's the whole area of coercive control, which is trying to tap into the psychological aspect of abuse. So that abuse comes in many forms, as we've already said, the physical violence that happens, but also the threats, the coercive control, the fear that is instilled in the survivors by the perpetrators. And this is now recognised as a criminal act. So the Domestic Violence Act came into place in 2018. It uh, highlighted the impact of psychological abuse and coercive control. It changed the age range of marriage. So uh, prior to the 2018 Act, you could get married with parental consent from the age of 16. And that has now changed in that you cannot get married unless you reach the age of, of adult consent, which is 18. The Act also identified that intimacy may be considered an aggravating, aggravating factor when it comes to sentencing uh, of perpetrators. However, you do not need to be in an intimate relationship for this Act to be relevant to your set of circumstances. You do not need to be boyfriend and girlfriend. You do not need to be husband and wife or long-term partners. So there is no requirement to be in a physical or committed relationship for this act to be appropriate to you. The 2018 Act also made forced marriage uh, illegal within Ireland. And it also hopefully in some ways made the journey through the law and the courts a little bit easier for survivors in that video evidence and television evidence can now be used uh, in these criminal proceedings. So it's better than it was. It's not perfect. Um, and it doesn't possibly go far enough. However, it's it's what we have to work with and it's definitely better than uh, what we had in place before this time. There has been major improvements in the latest law of 2018, simply for the fact, I suppose, what it looked like from a practical point of view was that prior to 2018, even after the 1996 Domestic Violence Act, if a lady was, say, living with a man, if she had four children with the man and she lived with him for 20 years, no matter what he did to her within that the house, she could not even apply for a bar in order against him if they weren't married and he owned the house. It was as simple as that. It didn't matter how long they'd been together, how many kids, he could beat her every single day of the week and she could not even apply for a bar in order because it wasn't her house. Whereas the emergency bar in order came into play in the 2018 Act, which meant that somebody in that situation could then apply for an emergency bar in order. It's not permanent, but what it does is it gets rid of the perpetrator to allow her to live in the house in peace, even though it's only for a period of a couple of weeks, but it's where she can then look for alternative accommodation or she can engage a solicitor, or she can go go and get help from a refuge, whatever she needs to do. Prior to that, she literally had nothing that she could do about that because she wasn't married to him. Um, mm -hmm. I think one of the really good things about the law, and it as always has been from the 1996 uh, Domestic Violence Act, is that it equally applies to men and women and people in same-sex relationships. There's no distinction. It's It's not for women, it's for people. 
And I, I think that's that's great. And also, especially what we see a lot of that is often isn't very visible in the community, but the elder abuse, the amount of people that um, that affects. And just, I suppose, for our listeners now, um, how can people support a person who is subject to domestic abuse or intimate partner abuse? And what support services are available for them? Who can they contact? A friend or a family member is such an important person to have if you're going through an abusive relationship. And what I would always advise, and, and quite often in the refuge, what may seem strange, we often get dads ringing the refuge to say, my daughter is in the situation. I've told her I'll kill him. I've told her this, I've told her that, you know, and we have to explain that the best thing he can do is to get the whole family together and explain to them that they need to cherish this person and give her as much love and support and comfort as possible, but not with the proviso that they're only given this if she does what they want or that she leaves the perpetrator. They need to show her as much love and build her confidence as much as possible and never criticise the perpetrator, which is very difficult for families and friends to do and they can see what's happening. But what we're trying to get them to do is we're trying to get friends especially to show love and compassion and support for somebody and build their confidence so that they can see, actually see in their own lives where their hassle is coming from. They can be with their family and have a lovely time and then go home to or go to meet the perpetrator and realise that this is a horrible experience by giving them that contrast. Whereas if a person feels that every time they meet up with their friend or their family member that they're going to be, you know, asked about it and queried and what's he done now and why don't you just leave and all that, all it makes them do is stop seeing the family members and their friends because they can't take that pressure as well as what they're already going through. Or they defend the person that they love, who may be a perpetrator, but they love them, and it makes them feel guilty. So they just avoid people. And then you've actually helped to isolate them even more without ever meaning to. So I'd say for friends and family, love bomb them, help them, support them, give them every bit of encouragement that you can and never criticise the perpetrator. Allow him to criticise. They will. He'll be criticising the friends. He'll be criticising the family. But the person can see that comparison then. And hopefully that will give them the confidence to think, I actually want to be with all these people who love and care about me. These are my people. You know, this other person is, in contrast, really against me. And it might give them the strength to do something about it. And Anita, who are the support services? Who can people contact? Primary health care team, of course, your GP, your public health nurse. Um, if you're engaging with hospital services or maternity services, all of the key workers within those fields. We have women's aid, uh, which is the national support agency. We also have Men's Aid Ireland as well for men who may be um, experiencing domestic abuse. Safe Ireland would be the umbrella agency with across the island uh, of Ireland that looks and helps, hopes to help support agencies. And then within each um, jurisdiction, there would be women's refuges that will be in place for women uh, and families who may be experienced to domestic abuse. We also have to recognise the um, transgender community because they're going to be exposed to a lot of abuse um, 
potentially Antenny, the Transgender Equality Network of Ireland, would be a really good support um, structure there. And of course, the HSE would also be a very good uh, support agency. I'm always reminded of, of my first engagement with, with Teresa when we spoke about this to our student midwives. And Teresa would tell you the story, and I'm sorry for taking your story here, Teresa. Teresa would tell you the story of her offering uh, cards um, on domestic abuse services, support services, to every woman uh, in the maternity unit. Um, and whilst not every woman will require it, every woman will have the opportunity to have it or keep it should they need it. And one woman coming back to you 10 years later with a really old card that you had given to her 10 years before when she wasn't ready to seek help. But now she kept that card and now she was ready. So in that respect, I suppose it's it's working in the best interests of the person who's experiencing domestic abuse, supporting them, um, giving them some form of control that they have lost completely because they're in this relationship and not telling them what to do because they're being told what to do 24 hours every single day and just support them as best we can. Well, from the refuge point of view and under the umbrella of Safe Island, there are 39 services across the island of Ireland. Most of them can be refuges and others are still 24 hours a day. The National Women's Aid Helpline is brilliant from the point of view that if somebody has a language difficulty, they can have a translator online as well at the same time that can assist somebody and it's free phone and the women's aid helpline also can ring every other refuge in Ireland to find if there's a space if that's what somebody needs but every agency is somewhere where you can go as in the guards you know social workers TUSLA child and family agency nurses midwives doctors everybody because everybody has is aware of this problem which people don't often realize Again, going back to the, obviously I'm, I'm involved with Drogheda Women's Refuge and in Meath there is the Women's Refuge in Navan. But sometimes people don't want to contact a local refuge in case they know somebody. So the national helpline is, is often good. And again, as Anita said, Men's Aid in Navan is, is brilliant for men. They'll give them great support and for them. And the, you know that Definitely, when it's a same-sex relationship, there are so many other layers that make that difficult because quite often I've come across men who have contacted us who are being threatened that if they do leave, they may not have come out to their you know, family, friends or uh, work colleagues and the perpetrator is threatening that if they do leave, that they will expose them you know, as perhaps being gay, something like that. And it's an extra layer. And also a woman walking into an A&E department, say, who might have been assaulted and beaten up and what looks like her friend helping her. But the female that's helping her might also be the perpetrator. So there are other layers involved there that we need to just kind of be mindful of, really. So thanks to everyone for listening to this podcast and special thanks go to Dr. Byrne in sharing her insights and her enthusiasm in spreading awareness of this subject. Also special thanks go to Teresa Woods who works tirelessly to make women and children safe from domestic violence and who offers support and hope to women affected by abuse. So if you have enjoyed this podcast, please recommend to your friends and family Thank you so much to all our guests today. Thank you.
You have been listening to the Dunboyne College podcast, hosted by Joanna Dull. Guests were Dr. Anita Byrne and Teresa Woods, who were in discussion with Patrice Byrne. Sound recording and editing was by Rob Kelly, and this is a DCFE media production. You can find out more about the college on our website, www.dumboyncollege.ie.